Welcome to the Irish Passport Half Pints, the extra content we make especially to thank our Patreon supporters. Hello, welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, Let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh I'm recording. One, One, two, two, three. three. Okay. If you travelled to Ireland before 1977, you might remember the old design of the former Irish currency, the punt. Younger listeners might be better acquainted with the most recent punts, with notes depicting historical figures such as Daniel O'Connell, James Joyce and Jonathan Swift. But until 1977, the designs of Irish currency had remained unchanged since it was first commissioned in 1927. Notes of every denomination bore the same curious image, a young woman, dressed in traditional Irish clothes and seated beside the glimmering lakes of Killarney. This image is laden with a particularly 1920s brand of nationalistic sentimentality. The subject is of course a beautiful woman, supposed to represent the figure of Kathleen Nihulahan, an allegory of Ireland itself. Her eyes are large and almond-shaped, Her lips are drawn into a fashionable rosebud, and her pencil-thin eyebrows would be the envy of any silent movie prima donna of the era. Yet, there is something striking and even disarming about this picture. The subject has turned her face towards us, as if we have interrupted her reverie gazing out across the Kerry Mountains. Her posture is relaxed, strangely confident, and her chin rests languidly in her hand her right elbow leaning into the crook of a harp. She looks almost as if she is about to speak, but has thought better of it. Instead, she stares right at us, unapologetic and unfazed, as if to say, what more is there to proclaim? Behold me, her expression seems to say. Yes, I am here, and I have always been here. I answer to no one, for I am the face of Ireland. The startling image would have been all the more remarkable when the first Dubliners laid their eyes on the new currency in the 1920s, as they received the shiny new notes from a till or a bank teller, and as they examined the curious new design, many of them must have realised that they knew this woman. The eyes looking back at them belonged to none other than Hazel Lavery, a famous beauty and somewhat scandalous socialite of the time a key figure in the Irish independence movement, and wife of the world-renowned artist John Lavery. Lady Lavery, as she had become known after her husband's knighthood, was something of a celebrity in both Dublin and in London. She was an artist in her own right, but had become much more famous for orchestrating some of the most important negotiations of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Many a man and many a woman had fallen under the spell of her movie star glamour. The Irish diplomat Shane Leslie, first cousin to Winston Churchill, once remarked that, I quote, she merely whistled to men and they obeyed as if it were a whip fashioned of her eyelashes. 
Most notoriously, it was even rumoured that Hazel Lavery had conducted a passionate love affair with both the rebel leader Michael Collins and the Lord High Chancellor of Great Britain. Perhaps most interestingly of all, this woman, who would go on to become the face of Ireland, was not Irish-born at all. Her extraordinary life began far across the Atlantic Ocean, in the well-heeled townhouses of Chicago, Illinois. Lady Lavery was born Hazel Martin in 1880 into a wealthy industrialist family in Chicago. Her father, Edward Martin, was a fifth-generation Irish-American who could trace his ancestry back to the Martins of Galway, one of the city's notorious merchant tribes. Her mother, Alice Louise Taggart, was a native of Wisconsin. The family was well-known in Chicago's high society, even after their father's death threw them into financial difficulty. As a young heiress, Hazel became known locally as the most beautiful girl in the Midwest, and her widowed mother, laden with financial worries, delighted in the endless stream of eligible suitors that courted her daughter. Hazel, however, was more interested in art. At the age of 23, she travelled to Brittany, in France, to visit an artist's colony, and it was there that she encountered a firmly ineligible love match a fellow artist more than double her age, named John Lavery. John Lavery, born to a Catholic family in inner-city Belfast, was orphaned at a young age. For much of his childhood, he was raised by relatives in the small town of Moira, County Down. While still a child, he moved to Glasgow to work as a photographer's assistant. Lavery had been talented from the outset, and by the time he was 22 years of age, he had already set up his own art studio. From there, he was commissioned to paint portraits of the royal family, and was eventually called upon to commemorate the state visit of Queen Victoria to Glasgow. By the time Hazel met John, he was a well-respected society painter. Her family, however, on discovering the affair, completely panicked. John was, after all, a full 24 years older than Hazel, and he did not exactly compare to the millionaire industrialists and Manhattan grandees who had courted her in the past. Worse still, Lavery had been married before to a woman named Kathleen McDermott, who had died just after the birth of their child in 1891. To Hazel's dismay, her mother forbid her outright from continuing a romance with John and insisted that she return to America at once. Hazel obeyed. Within a year, she was engaged to be married to a much more suitable man, Edward Livingston Trudeau Jr., son of a famous New York physician. Mrs. Martin's hopes, however, were quickly dashed. Within four months of their wedding day, Edward Trudeau fell ill with pneumonia. Hazel, now pregnant with her first child, was made a widow only a few weeks after their honeymoon. In the meantime, without her mother's knowledge, she had kept up a secret correspondence with John. Some years later, in 1905, as the Martin family summered in England, Hazel's mother was horrified to see John Lavery appear at their door. The following day he returned, and the day after, and the day after that. Her mother still held firm that there was no question of a future between Hazel and this bohemian Irish artist, but it was clear at this stage, even to her, that her daughter was head over heels in love. Still, the pair respected Mrs. Martin's wishes. It was only in 1909, after her mother had passed away, that the shackles were finally removed. Hazel and John were married. 
Perhaps it was this slightly dangerous element to their relationship that made Hazel and John's romance so intense. Or perhaps it was their similar circumstances. Both had lost their spouses to illness after a short marriage. Both were left with young children to raise on their own. Both had lost parents at a young age. And both were deeply devoted to the exciting and innovative art scene of the early 20th century. Whatever the case, John was clearly infatuated with his new wife, painting her and drawing her at every chance he could get. In fact, he reportedly went on to create some 400 pieces of art with Hazel as a subject. He even repurposed some old canvases of other women, including one portrait of the famous actress Sarah Bernhardt, and painted over their faces with Hazel's face instead. For the next few years, Lavery's career skyrocketed. He was appointed as official artist for the First World War, but importantly for what would come later, the injuries he sustained in a Zeppelin bomb meant that he couldn't travel to the Western Front. Instead, he remained in England during the turbulent war years, where he painted scenes of munitions factories and aircraft hangars. Nevertheless, his work was enough to see him granted a knighthood, and he became Sir Lavery in 1921, with Hazel taking on the title of Hazel Lady Lavery. Officially granted access to London's highest circles, the pair moved to the fashionable district of South Kensington, where they mixed with the British elite, and where John became something of a celebrity portraitist. Something else, however, had been going on in the Lavery household during the First World War. In 1916, the homebound John Lavery had been commissioned as court painter for the trial of Roger Casement, one of the leaders of the Easter Rising in Dublin. This chaotic rebellion against British rule in Ireland had dominated headlines across the world for months, and as the charismatic and romantic rebel leaders were tried for their crimes one by one by flustered British courts, the world watched on in fascination. Casement was good-looking, charming, and highly intelligent, and he was a particularly popular rebel leader. He was also one of the most high-profile anti-imperialists of his time, having famously led a landmark report denouncing colonial human rights abuses in Africa. During the Easter Rising, Casement had been instrumental in organising the smuggling of guns and weapons from Germany to arm the Irish rebels, and after the defeat of the rebellion, he was brought to England and charged with treason. The trial was highly publicised, not least because the British government had tried to blacken Casement's name by secretly circulating what were purported to be scandalous excerpts from his diary, apparently exposing that he was a homosexual. Newspapers ran front-page headlines on the trial every day, and the gallery was packed with some of the most recognisable faces of wartime London, including Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, who loudly voiced his support for Casement. Even the United States Senate had become involved, launching an appeal to have Casement's death sentence reconsidered. In the face of unyielding support for this rebel hero, the British court was thrown into disarray. Once again, as had happened so much after the Rising, there was simply no way for them to win. Should Casement be released, the Rising would be legitimised. Should the death sentence be upheld, Irish nationalists would be gifted yet another martyr to their cause. In the end, the British judges went with the second option. 
Casement was hanged in Pentonville Prison on the 3rd of August, 1916, and within minutes, his martyrdom as an Irish revolutionary was confirmed. Lavery's painting of the trial, now recognised as one of his masterpieces, tells its own story. The scandal surrounding Roger Casement made this commission a risky one, and it was all the more unusual for such a monumental painting to be produced of a court proceeding. The scene depicts the oak-panelled courtroom, crowded with the recognisable faces of senior attorneys, judges and observing celebrities. A packed gallery of black-robed solicitors rage and fumble around tables of piled documents. Above, scarlet-clad judges seem lost in deep contemplation, faced as they were with an impossible conundrum. At the dead centre of the painting is Casement himself, partially hidden behind the wooden bars of the witness stand, and distinguished from all other figures by his distinctly pallid glow. It is fear, perhaps, or resignation that has rendered him so pale, or perhaps this deathly halo is meant to communicate something else, a foreshadowing of his inevitable martyrdom, the strange immortality that he would soon achieve, precisely because a British court would sentence him to death. The leader of the prosecution against Casement, the arch-unionist Lord Birkenhead, was reportedly outraged when he caught sight of Lavery's finished work. This painting, he declared, is in the worst possible taste. Even before the trial, John and Hazel Lavery had become committed Irish nationalists. They had witnessed the growing tension in Ireland for themselves during a visit to Killarney in 1913, and when the Easter Rising had broken out three years later, they launched themselves into the world of nationalist agitation. Had the court known of their sympathies, it is questionable whether Lavery would have been asked to paint the proceedings at all. But once the trial got underway, John and Hazel Lavery's keen interest in Casement was evident to everyone who observed them. Roger Casement himself, in one letter written during the trial, spoke of noticing the same woman in the gallery every day. Who was the lady who sat near the painter in the jury box, he asked his correspondent. I thought I knew her face. It was very sad. Fittingly, Hazel Lavery herself appears in the finished painting of the trial. Amid the thronged, distracted crowds, the viewer can just make her out sitting on the balcony, leaning forward over the railings and hanging on every word. Casement trial seems to have radicalised the Laveries more than ever before, and they knew exactly how they could play their part in the Irish Revolution. As fashionable society artists to the British elite, the Laveries had the ear of countless political figures who sat for their portraits. Lavery was the portraitist to anyone who was anyone, and during the long hours behind the canvas, he and Hazel had developed intimate relationships with some of the most powerful people in the United Kingdom. Now, they planned to use these connections to their full extent. Shortly after the Casement trial, for instance, Hazel managed to secure a meeting with the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, in the hopes of convincing him to reconsider his policies in Ireland. She also developed a friendship with Winston Churchill, whom she taught to paint, and who was a neighbour of hers in Kensington. Her influence was so great, and so effective, 
that some even believed that Hazel was a covert spy for the Irish Revolution. Those suspicions must have been deepened in 1921, when Michael Collins, the then finance minister for the provisional Irish government, began to visit the Laveries at home. Soon afterwards, he became a frequent guest to their London home, even having his portrait painted by John. Soon, thanks to Hazel Lavery in particular, this otherwise untouchable Irish rebel had personal and direct access to some of the key players in the British Parliament. Hazel was besotted with Collins, who was handsome, dangerous, and also ten years her junior. The two soon became close confidants, and it was widely rumoured that they were conducting a romantic relationship. She would drive him back and forth to Downing Street from Kensington during the Anglo-Irish Treaty, and the sight of them together in a motor car, thundering down the manicured streets of Westminster, soon attracted scandal. Whether or not they were really romantically involved, the relationship between Hazel and Collins was certainly a passionate one. Collins even wrote some rather soppy, but admittedly endearing poetry in her honour, including this ditty. O Hazel, Hazel Lavery, what is your charm, O say? Like subtle Scottish Mary, you take my heart away. Not by your wit or beauty, nor your delicate sad grace, nor the golden eyes of wonder in the flower of your face. In another, rather more serious poem, composed as the Civil War raged in Dublin, Colin seems to feel reticence about dragging Hazel, who he characterises as a dove of peace, into the dark and dirty business of war. Cuckoogan, I call thee, Cuckoogan the dove, because of thine eyes and the voice that I love. Cuckoogan, I call thee, hast thou no fear, little bird, little love? I am the eagle, and thou art a dove. Hast thou no fear of me, wild is my nest in the mountain above? Will thou fly there with me, lovely white dove? Shall my wings carry thee? Hazel didn't seem to feel any such reticence for her part. Later, she spoke of this period as the happiest time of her life. When Michael Collins was assassinated in August 1922, a handful of letters from Hazel, stained with his blood, were found in his pockets. Soon afterwards, John Lavery, who appears to have endorsed his wife's relationship with the rebel leader, immortalised Collins in yet another iconic painting, depicting his body lying in state, wrapped in the tricolour of the Republic. He called it Michael Collins, Love of Ireland. It was not until 1927, five years after the Free State won its independence, that a new currency was commissioned for the new jurisdiction. This, like so many elements of the fledgling state, was a fraught matter. At this stage, Ireland was still reeling from the after-effects of multiple wars. The First World War had only ended ten years previously. The Irish Revolution had raged for six of those years, and before anyone had had the chance to recover, the subsequent civil war had ripped the country apart all over again. It goes without saying, then, that the people of Ireland were still bitterly divided. Some, who had been comfortable in the union with Britain, were worried about the future of the independent state, strapped for cash and looking like it was on very shaky ground. 
Many others felt a deep sense of betrayal after the Anglo-Irish peace treaty that had ended the war. The Free State had not been granted full republic status. Instead, it was now an autonomous dominion of the British Empire, and still owed a controversial oath of allegiance to the British monarch. Most divisive of all was the new border that had partitioned the island into north and south, with the largely unionist Northern Ireland remaining within the gambit of the United Kingdom. Holding the shaky reins of power in the Free State were the pro-treaty faction of the Civil War, and their authority was largely reliant on a series of tenuous promises. Firstly, they sought to woo unionists with promises of a better future outside the UK, and by incorporating a number of old British institutions into the architecture of the Free State. Secondly, they hoped to convince the more hardline rebels that the compromises of the Anglo-Irish Treaty were the most efficient path to full independence. An Irish Republic, they argued, would never be achieved by all-out war. Instead, they would have to carefully claw it back, and the North along with it, through strategic legislation and cultural recentering. In the words of the late Michael Collins, Ireland was not yet a republic, that was true, but it had now attained the freedom to achieve its freedom. Because of these deep-seated divisions, it was out of the question that an Irish currency should resemble contemporary European currencies of the time, that is to say, depicting overtly political or religious iconography, or worse still, portraits of political figures. After all, depending on their attitude towards the treaty, Irish people were as likely to see the architects of the Free State as traitors as they were to see them as national heroes. Instead, the new Free State coinage was to be decorated with beautifully stylized animals, a leaping salmon, a suckling sow, a charging bull, or a kingfisher in flight. These images, it was thought, reflected the agricultural reality of the ordinary Irish people, celebrating day-to-day -day life instead of nationalistic ideology. The images, indeed, remained on Irish coinage until the adoption of the euro in 2002. Though it might not seem so to us, the plan design for the banknotes was also relatively apolitical for the time. The image on the notes was to be a female allegory of the nation, which was a common and fairly uncontroversial tradition in lots of European countries at the time. Female allegories, after all, had always been used to represent Ireland, and on both sides of the constitutional divide. The Ashling figure of 17th century rebel tradition, for instance, had represented centuries of struggle for national freedom. The figure of Hibernia, meanwhile, usually imagined as a younger sister to Britannia during the 18th and 19th centuries, had frequently been used by the British and the Anglo-Irish ascendancy to represent the colonial Irish state. And, of course, the original name of Ireland, Era, is thought to derive from Eru, the name of an ancient Gaelic goddess. For the keen observer, however, there was a distinct and strategic political undertone to such an image. Female allegories had also been resurrected more recently in the literary revival of the early 20th century, most notably through W.B. Yeats' play Kathleen Nihulahan, where an Ashling vision appears to the main characters on stage and implores them to fight for the freedom of Ireland's four provinces. This may have constituted a nod to the anti-treaty faction, who still glanced nervously at the partitioned province of Ulster, while simultaneously reminding them that they shared a common history with the pro-treaty free state, 
in which W.B. Yeats now played an integral part. Considering the Lavery's history as diplomatic ambassadors, it is perhaps no surprise that John Lavery was asked to design the image for this new currency. And considering the major role played by his wife and his penchant for painting her, it is even less of a surprise that he chose her as his subject. In 1927, at the request of the Free State Government, John unveiled his portrait of Lady Lavery as Kathleen Nihulahan. It was immediately inscribed on the new Irish currency, where it would remain for a further 50 years. Even after the Republic's notes were updated in 1976, the iconic image of Hazel remained in the watermark right up until Ireland adopted the euro. The image, which former Taoiseach W.T. Cosgrave once remarked as being now held close to the heart of every Irishman, thus tells a remarkable story. Behind the unapologetic stare of Hazel Lavery, frozen in time by the Killarney Lakes where she and her husband first visited Ireland, is the dramatic tale of an American debutante who had become an Irish revolutionary icon. Hazel herself must have marvelled at seeing these banknotes in her own hands. Here was living proof of the cause that she had devoted so much of her life to. Here too was tangible proof of the dream that so many friends and confidants had died for. And here was her own face, the face of an Irish American, the most beautiful girl in Chicago, descendant of the great tribes of Galway, now the steadfast, redoubtable face of an independent Irish nation. Only a few years later, her light too was extinguished. John Lavery, who was so despised by the Martins for his old age, ended up outliving his young wife. Hazel died in 1935 after a long illness. John stayed with her throughout, continuing to paint her likeness, even as she wasted away. Perhaps the most poignant image he produced was one final painting of her coffin, engulfed in the golden glow of sunset through the windows of a parlour, overlain with a simple bouquet of flowers, and headed with two lighted candles. When John himself died in Kilmagani, County Kilkenny, an immortal image of his wife still shone forth in villages and towns all over the country, and would do so for decades to come. Men, women and children across Ireland carried Hazel Lavery's striking portrait in their pockets. And perhaps, as they peered back into those startling eyes, they had the same thought as Roger Casement all those years before, while he awaited his death in a British courtroom. I thought I knew her face. It was very sad. That's all from me for this edition of Half Pints. 
thanks so much to our Patreon supporters who make this extra content possible. Sloan.